I'm Coulter DeVries, owner of Ranch Investor Advisory and Brokerage Services. I'm an accredited land consultant with the Realtor Land Institute and proud member of ASFMRA. The Ranch Investor Podcast is the most downloaded and informative industry-specific content that intrigues while entertaining. Well, I, I knew this would be an interesting podcast when you called me. Well, I do want to talk to you. I, I want to hear about uh, your story. And for the Ranch Investor listeners who aren't familiar with Will Harris or White Oak Pastures, let's start with what is White Oak Pastures? <clears throat> White Oak Pastures is uh, our family farm in Bluffton, Georgia. Bluffton's in the coastal plain. Uh, my great grandfather came here in 1870, excuse me, 1866, and he started the farm. Uh, then handed it on to his son, my grandfather, who handed it on to his son, my father, who handed it to me. And now I have uh, two daughters and their spouses working here. And I got seven grandchildren who are the sixth generation on the farm. Well, five, five, I'm actually live on the farm. But, uh, uh, it was a uh, monocultural cattle operation for World War II to 1995. We started changing things. And today we pasture raise five red meat species, cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits. And we hand butcher them in the USDA inspected slaughterhouse here on the farm. We pasture raise five poultry species, chickens, turkeys, guineas, geese, and ducks. And we hand butcher them on a separate USDA inspected facility on the farm. We raise uh, organic vegetables, pastured eggs, honey, and some other little ancillary businesses. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't look little. Well, it looks like you have a lot of enterprises going on. Uh, I even see pasture-raised guinea fowl. Someone yeah. could go to your farm, and I've never had guinea before, but someone could go buy a guinea for dinner. Oh, yeah, it'll change your life. Guinea is real good. Guinea is <laughs> like pheasant, more like pheasant. The, the reason for having guineas up here in Montana, I don't know if it's urban legend or what, but... Um, all the old farm wives, homesteader wives, said it kept rattlesnakes out of the garden. Uh, maybe. They, uh, they, they eat ticks. We have them as watchdogs, and they, they eat ticks. Uh, <clears throat> they, uh, uh, and they're, they're, they're really good. They're, they're keeping rattlesnakes out of the garden may have to do with the watchdog part. They just they, they raise hell when they see something strange. and. If I was a rattlesnake, I probably wouldn't, wouldn't go that way. So why why so many enterprises and why not specialize as a corn and soybean farmer or in your part of Georgia, uh, beef master? Isn't that a isn't that a good breed of cattle for your area? Why not right why not be just a cow calf guy producing beef masters? Well, I, we we were cattle people. Uh, my dad uh, my, when my great granddad and granddad ran the farm, it was more like what I do today. A lot of different things. When my dad took over post World War II, uh, we became just cattle people. Period. Uh, not not just cow calf. We had we had a, uh, a feedlot. Not not like your Western feedlots, but we had a feedlot. And we raised nothing but cattle. The only only cash crop we had was. Uh, uh, cows and beef, calves and beef. Uh, I, I changed the farm. I went to the University of Georgia, major novel science, came back and ran it exclusively as a beef operation for 20 years. <clears throat> Graduated in 1976. In the mid-90s, I started moving away from that model. And uh, really, really pleased that I did. So you graduated around the time Secretary Butts said, get big or get out. I heard him say it. You heard him say that. And it seemed with my college degree in finance and a minor in uh, two minors in agriculture, 
um, I, th I think we get taught a lot of conventional uh, models, and I think there's a group group think going on, kind of like uh, oh, mass formation psychosis that <laughs> that you have to do it the way Bayer Syngenta MSU Ag Extension recommends, or else you're just you're just asking for trouble and you're asking for problems and failure. Is that were you part of that crowd at that time or were you always felt like you didn't really fit into that model? No, I loved industrial beef production. Uh, <clears throat> and I was good at it. We, uh, we, we, uh, we paid taxes every year. Uh, I, we weren't rich people. I don't mean that. We lived very comfortably. And I literally went back and looked and I never had a year I didn't pay taxes. We made money even when cattle were, were super cheap. Uh, we didn't make much. We made some. And of course, when the cattle were high, you know, we did pretty well, soccer a little away. But I, and I, I did inherit a farm with no debt. And we were pretty good cattle people. And when I changed, it was not economically driven. Uh, we, we, uh, I, I wanted to do things differently. You wanted, you wanted to have more positive, uh, ecological and communal and social environmental effect. It, yeah, the uh, I mean, all that worked out that way. Now, if I if I told you that a forty year old Will Harris walked outside in nineteen ninety five and said, you know, I believe the climate is changing, and I think I probably can do something about that by farming differently. That that did not happen. You know, I uh, it it started out on the animal welfare side with me. It very quickly turned into a land management issue for me. And uh, I made, uh, I, I, I knew what I had been doing and I studied what I could do differently and made changes and some worked, some didn't. Uh, re-implemented the ones that didn't and some worked, some didn't and re-implemented the ones that didn't and so on. And so on. The, uh, the three things that we think we do well, the only three things that we think we do well is uh, regenerative land management. We think we're good at that. Uh, uh, good, humane, animal husbandry. We think we're good at that. And community building, regenerating this impoverished rural community. We think we're good at that. And kind of the interesting part for me is the, the first two, the animal husbandry and the land stewardship were very studied, calculated, Changes I made just really set out to do different implemented. The third one, the employee, excuse me, the, um, uh, community enrichment was just just happened. Uh, by, by the way, when I changed from what I used to do to what I do now, I went from three minimum wage employees to 180 something employees that make well over the county average. We write checks in this. One of the poorest counties in the United States of America. You write payroll checks for over $100,000 every single Friday. And it, you know, if I do say so myself, it makes a hell of an economic impact. Well, I would imagine to get there, the, the discussions at night before bed with your wife, you were doing well. Um, things were going fine. You had your vacations to Key West, Florida, I'm sure. And it had to have been daunting and a lot of fear. How did you, how did you slowly transition to that or, or emotionally accept that and psychologically wrap your mind around it and then uh, gain consensus from, from your wife and other family members? That, that seems like the biggest hurdle is the people aspect. It's not about uh, turning your peanut ground into pasture, it's probably about uh, getting people to buy in that we're going to take this risk and it's going to be worth it. You got a wife? I do. You tell her everything? <laughs> I, I might embellish. I tell her everything, but I, I, I have a pol politician's way of putting a spin on it to sell it how I want. <laughs> I I have the ability to keep my mouth shut. 
So, but yeah, the points you raise are valid, and uh, several things I'll say about it. Uh, <clears throat> one is uh, uh, my my wife is a saint. Uh, I've been married to her for forty something years, and uh, she's uh, uh, is retired. She was a school teacher and a, and a great world class mother, but she's never been directly involved with the management of the farm. I always did that. She ran certain aspects of our life, and I ran other aspects of our life. And I truly, uh, you know, I, I just I didn't want to talk about it, but one time, so I didn't go home and talk about it. <clears throat> Past that, uh, uh, this is unusual, but my dad was an only child born in 1920, and I'm an only child born in 1954. So for farm families of those generations to have only children is, is, is pretty remarkable. But I didn't have any siblings I had to just discuss, discuss it with. <clears throat> I have three daughters. And when I started changing the farm, they were, they were kids. And, and I really didn't think they'd ever come back to the farm. You know, they, were, they weren't raised. I was raised uh, to do this. And they were not. So uh, <clears throat> no surprise when I came back. It, been, it was a surprise when two of them came back. So, and then the last thing, this is not very flattering, <clears throat> is that, you know, I, I, I probably, I probably, uh, you know, I, I had, as I said, I'd inherited a paid-for farm. We'd always made money. We'd, uh, I'd never borrowed any money. We'd always been comfortable, not rich, but comfortable. And I, I probably didn't, uh, really understand the uh, level of risk I put our family to. I was, uh, you, know, you mentioned Earl Bush. You remember Alan Greenspan? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, Alan Greenspan talked about, our fan talked about <clears throat> irrational exuberance. And I probably had a little of that. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, it, but I had some, uh, I had some really, really, uh, long discussions with myself about what in the hell I thought I was doing, but I, I, I did it, and it has thus far worked out all right. Now we let's let's let's, uh, let's be, and I and I had some years that we made good money since I changed. Now the business today is a very break-evenish business. It's just, that's just the facts. We got uh, <clears throat> uh, to do twenty-five to six million dollars in volume. And we got a lot of equity. We got debt. We got a lot of equity in the business, but still just breaks even. We pay ourselves a comfortable salary. I actually have employees that make more than I make, and my and, and my children make more than me. And I've got non-family employees that make more than they do, and I'm very proud of it. The, uh, they're not, and they're not overpaid. <clears throat> they have a skill set that we need. And we pay them the market for that skill set, and it happens to be more than we pay ourselves. Unapologetically. How how do you feel about government subsidies? Because I mean, there doesn't seem to be many out there for guys like you doing what you're doing. I think I think you get overlooked and left out in the farm bill. Well, I think government subsidies are the only place I know of that I'm a hypocrite. I don't think there's any other place I am. I am a hypocrite because I am opposed to government subsidies, but I sign up for everything I can sign up for. <clears throat> and I've, I've wrestled with that myself, and, and I'm comfortable with it. Uh, if they're going to give it away, I won't mind. I'm, I'm very competitive. I want to get under the goal with my elbows and try to get mine and yours if I can. But I... <clears throat> it, it, uh, there's a uh, grant given, uh, but I but take a point, uh, which you're saying, uh, there was a grant issued, I think, last week or the week before, Climate Smart Commodity Grant. And uh, we applied. I thought we had a really good project. And we got turned down. And, and you know, I was disappointed, but fine with it. You know, other people had better projects, no problem there. But then when the list came out, you had people like Coca-Cola and PepsiCo and John Deere and Bayer and uh, Microsoft 
or Hillary Slings and uh, Google. And that, that uh, I think that probably is, is uh, sums it up pretty good. <clears throat> yeah, I, I'm vehemently opposed to uh, subsidies, all forms, and the Farm Bill, Ag subsidies, and all of them. But uh, you can't take your pride to the bank. They won't cash it. So it's you. If you don't take it, your neighbor is going to take the subsidy. So my best, my best friend is a guy that you might have heard of, named Gabe Brown, a rancher in North Dakota. You know or know of Gabe? Oh, of course, and I know of Gabe very well. That's why I brought the question up. <laughs> He's, uh, he, I, I consider him to be my best friend, and uh, he will not accept government subsidies. And when we have, we we drink a little, drink a little liquor together and start talking about it. So you know, Gabe, I'm just. I mean, I feel the same way you do. I'm just more of a prostitute than you are. <laughs> you, you're, you're, you're a better man than I am. I admit it. So the, what you're doing and what Gabe is doing, and I had Paul Grieve on a couple of weeks ago with Pasture Bird, is there, you guys are creating uh, profit because you're, you're very unique. There's not a lot of you out there. You have a brand beyond a commodity. Your marketing is, uh, it's exceptional, but what you're marketing takes a lot more than marketing grain. It, it's a lot more difficult to market uh, guinea fowl straight from your farm. So, so yeah, you do have certainly more um, risks and investments in marketing a value-added product and promoting the practice and the production principles, the values and vision. Um, and you're getting paid handsomely. You're getting rewarded very well for that. But is, is what you're and Gabe, what your model, what you guys are doing, is that replicable, scalable across uh, 400,000 farmers in North America? Uh, it, well, you asked two questions. It is highly replicatable. It is not highly scalable. Okay. So, so uh, <clears throat> this may be more than you want to know, but you know, we talk a lot about complex systems and complicated systems. You know that drill? So I do not. A complex system, complex systems like your body or this farm or an ecosystem. There's a lot going on to make it work. Yes. A complicated system is like this computer we're talking on or a factory. There's a lot going on to make it work. In a comp complex system, if one component ceases to operate, everything morphs and it continues to operate. In a complicated system like a factory, if one component breaks down, the game stops. <clears throat> There's no resilience there. It is, the factory model is highly efficient. It's highly scalable. The uh, complex ecosystem or farm system is highly replicatable and very resilient, not scalable, not, not. So we, <clears throat> where I think we screwed up and I was part of it, my dad was part of it and then I was part of it, is applying that linear factory model to the cyclical holistic farm and there were unintended consequences and the unintended consequences fell on the backs of the welfare of the animals and the degradation of the land and the water and, and now we know climate and the impoverishment of rural America and I I was part of that program so I didn't realize I didn't like it much and I started moving the other way and I've been moving the other way 25 years As part of that complex system, agriculture and producing food, uh, animal proteins, do you see land ownership, um, maybe vestedness, a vested interest? Do you see that being 
vital? Is there, it's, I'm sure it's happening in Georgia just as much as Wyoming, Montana, Washington, anywhere, Alberta, um, more absentee landowners, more uh, near-term investors, maybe not long-term 20-year type investors, but maybe five to 15-year type investors. Uh, they're buying rural acreage with the hope that it appreciates well. Uh, maybe that appreciation comes from urban sprawl. It's going to be, your farm is going to be rural residential someday. Um, but also it provides a quality of life where they can take their kids hunting, fishing, take their friends out four wheeling. That is undoubtedly playing a factor in having fewer owner operators across the United States world. Uh, do you see that being, uh, bad, good? I'd hate to put, I'd hate to put these labels on it, but is, is there, is there going to be unintended consequences from that? So I will put the bad, I don't use bad and good, and I'll stand that. Uh, and I'll try to stay away from that myself. But I will say that it is bad when technocrats manage land. Uh, technocrats managing that factory linear scalable model and their unintended consequences on the land, as we just discussed. And sadly, I, I believe that not much of the land is owned by people that know what to do with it. And knowing what to do with the land is a skill set. It's a profession. It, and I think we've lost it in most places, most cases. And so much of the land today is owned by the federal government. You think the federal government knows how to manage land? It's owned yeah. by insurance. It's owned by insurance companies or holding companies or other investors. Uh, Wall Street and Silicon Valley own more and more and more land and don't know how to manage it. And I think that uh, land is not managed, degrades, and especially especially if it's managed industrially. I think a lot of farmers that have land don't know how to manage it. Uh, so. I guess I'm uh, saying that, you know, people who buy, invest in land, waiting for it to go up like you invest in gold. Uh, I, I don't think that's good. No, I don't. I think that people who invest in land to improve the land, I think it can be good. Now, historically, that has been the multi-generational multi management system. You know, we are... Uh, Right now, we're building, this farm is 3,200 acres. It's divided up into about 140 paddocks, 30-acre paddocks. And I chose to divide those paddocks in with uh, permanent fencing. Now, I'm, uh, polywire fencing can work fine. It'd be a, a lot cheaper in the short run. But I've got two daughters and their spouses here who are in their early 30s. So... And they're, they're in it to win it. They're committed to be here. So if you think of that fencing project generationally, I'm better off to go ahead and not, not, not have poly while we move every day. So, you know, it's generational management. Uh, we built the organic model in this farm, on this farm. There's a, there's a study on my website, uh, whiteoakpasture.com under the, environmental stewardship tab. There's a study done by Qantas that shows the organic model over the last 20 years has gone from a half percent to five point something percent. That's generational management. And doing the things I've done to raise that organic model does not pay in the 12-month window. You're cash renting for 12 months. You, you're foolish to do that. So uh, <clears throat> what I guess I'm saying is Yes, there are people who I wish didn't own land, people in entities that I wish didn't own land, because I don't think they know what to do with it. Uh, those, if, if they seek good management, 
it's probably fine for those people to own land, but you got to decide how you're going to cut that cake. I mean, every, everybody's got to everybody's got to prosper from the relationship, and the farmer, rancher, land manager has got to to be made whole, and the investor's got to be made whole. And I've been in a lot of discussions about how to do that, and it's really hard to to uh, to figure out how what's equitable there. I want to say one more thing. So, <clears throat> you you're an economist. Is that what you said? Your background? Is that right? Well, just a finance degree. I'm 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 not an economist. Maybe maybe an armchair economist will. Even better. Even better. Finance is even better. So, I'm not. I'm a C student from the University of Georgia College of Agriculture. And I don't know much about investments, but uh, I bought a piece of land, right? Just, you know, I, I can see it from here. And uh, the land's gone up now, but I paid $2,950 an acre for the land. That's what it was worth. That was the market. I didn't get a deal. I didn't get robbed. It's pedestrian, non-irrigated land. That was the market that day. <clears throat> I'm going my way to the lawyer's office to close it. This is a couple of years ago. And CNN told me that gold was at $2,040 an ounce. And I just about had to pull my Jeep over and think about that. Uh, for, for the, the very idea of a acre, of, you know, so you, you know about non-depreciating assets. I don't know about that, but I know there are non-depreciating assets. And I know land is one, and precious metals is one, and precious gems is one. I guess maybe art might be one. I don't know anything about that. Are there any others? Can you think of any others? You've listed the big ones. All right, so let's go with that. So for a acre of land, non-depreciating asset, to be worth less than an ounce of gold, non-depreciating asset, is perverse. You know, the, if you if you look at the two assets, gold wins in that it's more portable. You can put it in your pocket, put it in your sock drawer, put it in your safety deposit box. Gold probably wins. It's probably a little bit more liquid. If you needed to cash it out, you could probably cash out an ounce of gold faster in a matter of days, but faster than you could to make the land. But after that, land is the best asset. I mean, it's not likely somebody will steal it. Uh, you can do you can do something to improve an acre of land. You can't do anything to improve an ounce of gold. You just wait for the market to go up or not. And I can go on and on about why an acre of land would be better, but it's not. And the reason is what I told you earlier. Everybody knows what to do with an ounce of gold. What, put a chain on it, wear it around your neck. But not many people know what to do with that acre of land. I, I agree, and that so my my belief in support of free markets and capitalism. I hope that every day, every minute, we're moving towards a better world that's more efficient, uh, more productive, more abundant, less risk uh, because of capitalism and because of free markets and this the idea of losing generational knowledge. Uh, because it leaves the land, it leaves the community. <clears throat> that is concerning to me. I guess my hope is that um, you, you don't like the technocrats, but I believe maybe in the future, because agriculture is such a capital intensive industry, that you take these operations, and unfortunately, in my belief, it has to be at scale, and you have someone like my brother who is an animal science degree from Oklahoma State. So he focuses on livestock and he focuses on animal welfare. Then you take me, who's the finance guy, um, and that's my focus. That, that's my technical trade, my uh, contribution to the, to the whole enterprise. And then maybe my, my other brother, who is a range and soil scientist, uh, he could be in charge of uh, ecology, um, land management, but I, I almost think that we're, that's a good thing if we're moving to that model. I don't know if you would agree with that. No, I would not. 
you you would rather see a well-rounded individual who who has exposure to all three fields rather than being being an expert well you kept talking about scale and and scale is uh we have achieved incredible scale in our culture and i don't know that we got and i don't know that we're better off for having done so uh, uh, and I think we're probably on different ends of that spectrum. I, I think it would take scale to to hire three specialists. My brother, my two brothers, and I. I mean, there's no other than what you and Gabe Brown are doing with value added marketing. There's really no way to compensate us on the farm as compared to what the rest of the market would be willing to pay us in town. Okay, well, so I'm just second. I'll explain it to you. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I think that part of the uh, I think that spe the specialist that you feel good about has a tremendous amount to do with the degradation of the farm economy and the, and the, the soil and the quality of the food and the other things that, that, that I work to get away from. So let me see if I can explain this to you. Uh, you know, I used to plant uh, Tifton 85 Bermuda grass. And I, I would, because the, the forage specialist told me that correctly, that nothing would assimilate Elemental nitrogen like Tifton 85 Bermuda grass that would grow in my typical zone. But I planted monocultures of Tifton 85 Bermuda grass. And if you were a plant and you grew in my Tifton 85 Bermuda grass, I would spray you with gray zone P and D and kill you. And the, the uh, fertility expert told me to take soil samples and put out. Uh, Phosphate and potassium that was mined, and nitrogen that was made from natural gas, and how to do those things to maximize the production of my 285 And then the the entomologist would come and tell me what to put on the 285 to kill the uh, fall armyworms and, and whatever else I had that was out there. I can go on and on with that. We can talk about it all day long. And then you know, the animal scientists would come, breed, the uh, breeding guy would come by and tell me what kind of semen I should be AI in my cattle with that would really bring the most money. And, I, and all these specialists, all these experts, all these brilliant people, and they really were are brilliant people, who had such incredible depth of knowledge in that one siloed area. And they didn't get the whole picture. And I ran this farm for many years like that. And my dad did before me. And these specialists would, would uh, come up with these how-to manuals of how to run a farm. And we taught it at the land grant universities. And I'm going to tell you the big tip. You can write a how-to manual on a linear uh, system. You cannot write a how-to manual on a cyclical system. And you know, I came to view these experts like you and your two brothers as guys who are watching the baseball game through a slat in the fence. And they get their part right they get the rest of it wrong. If you're, the, if you're watching the ball game through a slat and fence and you're coaching the, the first baseman, probably not going to be the best information in the world you can give him because somebody needs to know what the shortstop's doing. So, uh, no, I think you're pretty wrong on that deal. I think that uh, the holistic uh, expert who has experiential knowledge and wisdom is an exponentially better farm manager than what you described before. Yes, yes. I mean, I think Russia tried that back 
when you're talking about Earl Butts. I mean, I think they had those huge collective farms that were run by uh, uh, PhD, you know, you know, the, the old thing is just, uh, you know, more and more about less and less. Yeah. And they're, they're, brilliant. they're brilliant people. They're brilliant people, but it, this is a holistic system. You know, if you're building a, uh, a computer, having that uh, great depth of knowledge in that electronic situation is fine. If you're, if you're a, uh, a, a, a uh, chemist, you know, having that great depth of knowledge and, and blending these chemicals together, compounds together, works. If you're managing a complex system, uh, I, I don't think it's the best way to do it. And I think that, I, mean, I think I, I can look out that window and see it. I mean, I see land that's a half percent organic. You know, I see, I see water rushing off these fields that looks like a strawberry milkshake when it all looks like wheat tea. I see, I can go on and on. What we did with all that, that system that you talked about is the changes in agriculture was industrialization, treating the, treating the farm like a factory, industrialization. Commoditization, that's not working to put the most value you can in your product, but to meet the minimum standards. We'll talk more about that in many people. And the last one is centralization, which literally rendered rural America to be economically irrelevant. That's why these little ag towns are drying up. And if you watch them, if you look, the more agrarian the economy, the worse uh, centralization impacted. The little town I'm in right now uh, caught the brunt of it. Uh, had a, a good, thriving little agrarian economy for several reasons I could go into, but never had a railroad, never had a mill, never had a factory. And when it became you know, impoverished, it became totally impoverished. Well, let, let's stay on this uh, philosophy of siloed expertise and, and specialization, because I... I, I mean, <clears throat> you're, you're attorneys. If you're going to be an attorney, you have to specialize. If you're going to be a CPA anymore, you have to specialize. And, and every part of our economy is, is becoming highly specialized. And if, if that's not the way, uh, what is the free or what is the invisible hand of the market, free market capitalism? What is it doing to create our are we going to, is it going to win out in the end and create holism? I can't let you get by with that now. You, know, you talk about uh, lawyers and accountants. And that is a very linear, complicated system. That's where those guys need to be. Absolutely. I don't want a uh, guy keeping my, my I, I got a CPA. I don't want a guy that, uh, knows a little bit about a lot. I don't know one guy that knows a hell of a lot about you know my financials and my taxation and, and that sort of thing. So don't don't confuse the two. Now I don't I didn't understand that part you said about the winning out. What was that? Well is is the free market and capitalism if if you're a believer in it, um maybe maybe you're not, but is it gonna lead us towards Holism, holistic management, where there's maybe not one person who has a wide range of skills and talents, but maybe a team. Um, are we getting to a point where maybe it's tipping out of industrialization and more towards considering the impacts on ecology, community, people, uh, plant, uh, plant density, nutrient density, uh, wildlife, or are we are we there? Are we tipping, or are we still so far off? And and will we get there? Well, I I I I, I had I knew I was right about the other things I responded to. Uh, this I'm more responsible to give you now. I'm not sure I'm exactly right about. It. I'll just tell you what I think. It's what I know and what I think. What I've been telling you is what I know. This is what I think. So I think I'm a capitalist too. I believe I am. Uh, 
you know, I don't know that I could write a good, real good uh, definition of a capitalist, but I think I am one. I'm certainly not, uh, certainly not a communist or a socialist. If it's in that context, uh, I think I am one. Uh, but here's what's happened to our capitalistic system in, in agriculture. All right, so I, I think this, this number's right. I think USDA says that the farmer gets something like 15 cents of every consumer dollar. That's, that sounds that sounds, that sounds, yeah. <clears throat> I, mean, I, I wouldn't argue that number, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. <clears throat> and if I wanted to beat up on big ag, and I really enjoy beating up on big ag, if I wanted to beat up on big ag, I would rant about how that was absolutely bullshit, unfair, ridiculous, but I don't. I, I, I do rail, rail against big ag, but not about that, because... Uh, most people who take that at face value don't realize the incredible service that big ag offers to farmers. And again, I'm I'm not, please don't take this as me defending big ag. I ain't doing that. But what's true is, if you're a farmer in these 48 states, I don't know about Alaska and Hawaii, but these 48 states, and you raise a load of any commodity, that's an important word, commodity, you, if you get 48,000 pounds on a truck, you can call Big Ag, and they'll come and get it, and they'll send you a check. Now, the check may not be 15 cents of what the dollar, I don't know that, but they will come and get it from you, and that is one hell of a service, because if they didn't, you'd have to find a way to get it processed. And we're talking about if it's oranges, soybeans, hogs, strawberries, Eggs don't matter. But the farmer doesn't have to get it processed. You know, doesn't have to make it marketable. That's done for them by Big Ag. Big Ag charges a lot, but they do it for them. And the farmer's risk ends when they pick it up. And the farmers don't have to find the market for them. And the farmers, it's just market access is incredible. So Big Ag does a lot. I don't think it's worth 85 cents of a dollar. But over and above that, here's where the capitalism breaks down. There are a lot of externalized costs that neither the farmer nor big ag picks up. So, I mean, I, I, you can Google the numbers, but how many different species of plant and animal and insects and microbes have gone extinct in the last not very long? It's a lot. And that's an externalized cost. That, that, that has a cost. And neither the farmer nor big ag pays it. There's a dead spot in the Gulf of Mexico. The Gulf of Mexico is about 80 miles down that way. There's a dead spot out there. It's bigger than the state of Massachusetts. And I'm going I'm to suggest that a lot of that came from uh, chemical fertilizer and uh, pesticide runoff. Not all, but a lot. And that has a great cost. But big ag and farmers are not going to pay it. We are. Society is. Uh, antibiotics that don't work anymore. We don't have a small number of antibiotics in the arsenal to cure you. You got children? You got kids? I do. Two-year-old. Uh, if your two-year-old gets a disease, there's a lot less antibiotics that might make him or her well than it was 15, 20 years ago. And, and uh, I would suggest that uh, sub-therapeutic use in, in CAFOs contributes to that, to that resistance in, uh, in pathogens of the antibiotic. And that, that's a great cost. But big ag and the farmers don't pay that cost. Side of it. Uh, you know, I don't know if you believe in climate change or not, but I do. And uh, what does a good hurricane cost? <clears throat> I think Ian was probably a couple billion. A billion dollars, but now if agriculture contributes to climate change, what does that cost? It's a lot. And if you want me to, I can go on with this a long time. So what's mucked up, notice how I use that word? What's mucked up is 
with capitalism is how many of the cost of food production is externalized. So, yeah, we, me and you way apart on that, dude. No, I, I, I agree. A lot of the costs are borne by society, and they're, they're really, unfortunately, they're out of sight, out of mind. Not out of my sight, not out of my mind. But I, I, agree. I agree with you. You're, uh, well, you're part of the 2% of people who will have their hands on, on, of the United States, who have their hands on crops and cattle. The other 98%, it's... Uh, <clears throat> How, how the food is produced and what its impact is on society, on ecology, it's, boy, it's less relevant than how they're going to get to work that day. Yeah. Well, Will, we're about at the end of it, but uh, you brought up uh, nutrient food density, and uh, there's a few other topics. I'd really like to have you on for another episode sometime, if you wouldn't mind. I'd love to be on, but uh, I don't talk about nutrient density. I, I, I have some opinions about it, but there are experts that know all about that. And uh, I don't talk about uh, food safety I, uh, because there are experts that talk about it. And, and you know, a lot of things I don't talk about. I don't talk about culinary, you know, how good it tastes. You know, that, that's, I'm not an expert. I'm an expert in animal welfare, regenerative land management, and the, the local rural economy. And I, I feel good about going toe-to-toe -to -toe with anybody on those things. But these other things, uh, nutrient density, I mean, I got opinions, but, you know, there's nothing that sounds any stupider to me than a farmer talking about omega-6s and omega-3s and conjugated linoleic acid. That is, that's so stupid. <laughs> I'm going to keep my credibility and my gravitas by talking about what I know about. Well, then we should, uh, if you don't mind, we should talk about land management. That's that's an important piece of of uh, my audience, of my my brand, Ranch Investor. So I would like to hear more about next time silvopasture and rotating, uh, integrating animals into, I don't know if you have cash crops yet anymore, but uh, doing livestock rotations, any type of an animal rotation, silvopasture, uh, soil water management that would be now that we covered the broad philosophical topics let's get technical next time will i'm, I'm, I'm much more comfortable talking about that stuff i'm, I'm much more <laughs> talking about moving cows than economic impact so that's good well i hope my listeners they got a good uh philosophical debate and some some something to think on and chew on while they're driving the tractor spraying uh w uh Geez, it's been so long since I've sprayed, Will. <laughs> uh, spraying 2,4-D. There you go. I hope I, hope I, I hope I hadn't pissed them off too bad, but it's, it's, it's what I had to say. <laughs> they, uh, they're probably not going to change my mind. No, I, uh, my, my story is, gosh, I must have been 24, and I was listening to Jim Garrish kick the hay habit while I was putting up hay. <laughs> and, and after about the fourth uh, the fourth plug in the baler that day, I said, I've had enough of this shit. I'm done. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I, and, uh, I got a lot of respect for Jim Garrish, but I still hadn't been able to kick the hay habit. And I, I live in a place where you shouldn't have to, but I, but I do. I plead guilty to that. Well, thank you for coming on. So does White Oak Pastures, do you deliver all across the U.S.? Sadly, we do. Uh, okay. We're trying to correct that. <clears throat> we, uh, you know, we need to do $25 million worth of business volume to make our business work. And I, I can't get $25 million worth of business in South Georgia, Southeast Alabama, Northwest Florida. So we have to reach out. And our goal is to ship as, you know, I, I want to, uh, I, I really don't want to ship all the way across the country. I want, I want there to be somebody uh, over there doing where over there is. And uh, uh, but, but yes, we do. We're trying to to bring our radius down. My daughter runs that part of the business. She's doing some creative stuff with pricing and shipping that I don't understand and don't want to know much about. But 
Okay, and for uh, for those who enjoyed your your podcast session here with me, you've been featured on Netflix. And what uh, what are some of the documentary features you've been in? They they there's been a few of them They're on our website. I I, uh, I tell you this. Uh, so uh, we we sold the book rights on White Oak Pastures to uh, about two years ago, a year and a half ago to. Ten one random house Vikings got three names. It's a big, big publishing company. A book yeah. conglomerate. Yeah, well then. So uh, 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 they wrote the book. They had a hired a young woman to write the book. She's a sweetheart. She spent a lot of time here on the farm and we spent a lot of time on the phone. But it's going to be released in a year. Uh, okay. It's, it's called Bold Return to Giving a Down. And, it's called what again, Will? A bold return to giving a damn. Okay, and will that be on? I spend a lot of time in the pickup. Will that be on audiobook? I don't have any idea. It doesn't, it doesn't belong to me. I sold it to them. Okay. Well, I I know you've been on a few uh, excellent documentaries and features. Those are on your website, whiteoakpastures.com. Uh, you have some incredible products on there. Like I said, the the guinea fowl, I'm going to have to try that, but I'd like to come down to your farm and try it in person. You guys probably have uh, like in-person farm days, come visit. and We, we actually got uh, uh, lodges or uh, cabins here on the farm for lodging. And we got, I built an RV park about a year ago. And we got a store, a restaurant, and uh, we serve 21 meals a week, three meals a day, seven days a week. So we, we set up for company. We uh, also, I'm going to tell you this, we started a, uh, uh, we founded a nonprofit last year called CFAR, C-F-A-R. It stands for Center for Agricultural Resilience. Yeah, Center for Agricultural Resilience. Well, well I look forward to look forward to seeing some of the work produced by CFAR. Uh, it, the, the conversation that we were having today is what those sessions are about. And okay. Now I, I would invite you to come to one of them. Uh, there's a, uh, out, they're, they're building a CFAR website, and I think it's built, but it may not be. It may still be a page on the White Oak Pastures, but I don't know if they press the button to make that go live or not, but uh, I, I would invite you. It's got the schedule. I'd invite you to come as my guest. I'd be glad to have you down and, uh, and attend one. Well, I would enjoy that. I'll, 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 I'll give you a session on the program to talk about uh, having PhDs run your farm for you. you know oh, <laughs> uh, get a bunch of academics in their ivory tower telling you how to do it, Will. Well, that's the way it's been for a long time. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on. I, I know I'm going to get a lot of feedback and requesting you a second time. So uh, we'll try to schedule that. And I would love to go to Georgia. Um, this winter when it's minus 22 up here in Montana, I think my wife and daughter and I should head down there. I think you should. I think you should. You'd certainly be welcome. Love to have you. Thanks, Will. Have a good evening. Thank you. Thank you for having me on Click subscribe on your streaming platform so you know when the latest episode has dropped. Be the source of knowledge and the maven that other professionals are excited to refer.